in the history of Pulitzer Prizes and the Oscars, very few winners have turned down these awards. One of those who did was a famous Armenian-American, a writer from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. His name, William Saroyan. He turned down a Pulitzer for the drama called The Time of Your Life in 1940. Saroyan said he was opposed in principle to awards in the arts and was quoted as saying such arts awards vitiate and embarrass art at its very source. His son Aram, a well-known poet in his own right, has written a lot about his father and his relationship with him. We asked him to talk about his book, Last Rites, The Death of William Saroyan. Aram Saroyan, how often do you come across people that have no idea who your father, William Saroyan, was? Well, you know, in the early days, because uh, I'm now uh, 78, about to go 79, uh, very seldom. Uh, you know, his heyday was the uh, uh, the 30s and the early 40s. And then post-war, uh, he... He had a kind of eclipse because the the whole spirit of the country changed after the war, uh, and he, you know, he had been a hero of the Depression years because he had come up with these ebullient stories in the face of the calamity, the, the economic calamity of of uh, of the 30s. Uh, but then when the war was over and America was really the post-war hope for the Western world. Uh, he was considered a sort of uh, rose-colored glasses romantic, which I, I don't think was a fair assessment of who he was, but that his, his reputation went into a kind of eclipse. These days, I think he's coming back uh, in, into favor. People are realizing that his best work is is going to endure. Uh, you know, I'm talking about uh, pieces. Well, the original "My Name Is Aram," which was published uh, three years before I was born, and is really, I think, one of the very first, if not the first, uh, multicultural piece of writing in in America um, gave birth to a whole new genre. I mean, people named their kids Aram, not because they were Armenian or Persian, but just because they loved the book. Um, and then a play like The Time of Your Life, um, which has been an enduring theater classic for, you know, over half a century. What was all of that is? Go ahead. I was just going to. What was the time of your life about? And, and it was in, in the, as I, in the introduction that you didn't hear. I said that he refused the Pulitzer Prize for that back in 1939. What was it about? It was about a waterfront saloon in San Francisco on the eve of the war, I think, um, or of America's involvement in the war, and. Uh, he was, uh, you know, a, 
at that time, he was the ripe old age of 30. And uh, five years earlier, nobody was paying any attention to him at all. Uh, he broke through with his uh, story collection, The Daring Young Men on the Flying Trapeze, in 1934. And uh, I think it was, uh, you know, it was a... There were a lot of impulses behind that uh, rejection. Uh, I mean, his official position was that uh, uh, commerce had no business patronizing art. Uh, you know, he got a thousand dollar prize w with with the prize, thousand uh, dollars worth of cash, uh, and he didn't need it. At that time, he was among the best paid writers of his generation. So uh, there was that. And there was also uh, kind of thumbing his nose at the uh, hierarchy that the literary uh, gatekeepers that really hadn't, uh, hadn't responded earlier. There's uh, a whole lot of stuff, and just being young and ebullient and saying, I, I don't need this. This uh, particular podcast episode is kind of a point of personal privilege for me. I want the listeners to know that because it, it's not um, – I've not asked you to talk to us because of politics. I've asked you to talk to us something I've always wanted to – I met you. You won't remember in 19 – 1961 at Purdue University in Lafayette, Indiana, where I was a student. And I worked as your father's rehearsal assistant in a play that he wrote on campus as an artist and resident called The High Time Along the Wabash. And I you read. Know, I, I remember that. I, I remember the visiting him. I believe my sister was with me, Lucy. Uh, but uh, it's funny because I was talking with somebody today and there was a wonderful character in the play. Um, and he read the line in a way that I, I could never quite understand. But then then it came through to me. And the, the line was um, the, the way he read the line was, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and, and the line was, "What do you want me to do?" <laughs> but it was, it was it was funny, you know. I I do remember that. Um, when that I time. I read your yeah. your read your book, and that's one thing I want to talk to you about called "Last Rites: The Death of William Saroyan as a as chronicled by his son Aram Saroyan. I read it years ago. It came out in 1982, and I reread it right. within the last year. So I'm. I'm honored oh. that we could have this chat. Um, let me read you the very favorable review on your book back in 1982 from the New York Times. I'm just going to take a quote that they ran out of it because it obviously got their attention and get you to respond. The quote from your book was, My father never liked me or my sister, and he never liked our mother either. After an initial infatuation, and in fact, he never liked anyone at all after an hour or two. No, no, one uh, except a stooge, someone he could depend on to be a lackey. I'm getting the sensation that I may have been that lackey. A nitwit 
he could make fun of behind his back, someone he could control completely by whatever means he could make work, fear, intimidation, or because of uh, he was famous and an admired man, blind worshipfulness. All that's a mouthful, but uh, why did you write that? Well, that was written at the beginning of the book, and um, really, the book is uh, is a diary. It, it, unlike anything I've ever written before or after, uh, it was written in, in three weeks uh, after we got the news that, uh, after Lucy and I got the news that uh, our father was dying, and we... Uh, uh, we put aside all the differences that both of us had with him. She hadn't seen him in about a decade. I hadn't seen him in three or four years and uh, decided that w- she was living in Beverly Hills at the time. And I was in Northern California in Bolinas, uh, Marin County. Uh, she was going to go visit him, uh, take up a basket of, uh, a, a lunch basket and, and uh, knock on his door because she'd heard from his attorney uh, that uh, he he basically wanted to have her to see her and uh, so she packed up and drove to Fresno and he was uh, very mean to her he wouldn't he he let her in for a moment uh, and then. Uh, uh, threw her out of the house. Said, uh, and while she uh, was there, he said to her, does Aram know? And uh, she said, yes, he does, because she had phoned me with the news, um, having heard from his lawyer uh, that, that he had cancer. And uh, he said, Oh, that's just great," she said. He said, "I I could strangle uh, Aram Kavorkian, who was the name of his lawyer, with my bare hands." Uh, and uh, and then ended by saying, "Tell Aram not to call, not to write, and not to phone. He'll kill me if he does." And Lucy called me from a phone booth in Fresno and said because we were going to, my wife and I and our kids were going to come down the next day, uh, drive down, and we were going to have some kind of family reunion. She, she, she was in tears. She said, don't come down here, Art. Don't, don't come down here. And uh, it just, it, it was an odd situation. I had been kind of keeping a diary at the time, and the diary just, at that moment, just exploded. And all the anger that I had felt growing up the son of a guy who was just misperceived by the media, uh, essentially as the writer of the warm family sagas of My Name is Arm and the Human Comedy, uh, I remember people saying, oh, you must, he must be the most wonderful father in the world. And being a young, being a child and then a young man, I I thought, well, maybe he is. I'm not sure, you know. And I certainly didn't want to disagree with the public perception. That was too big a job. 
So basically, I just went along with that and didn't think about it that much and went went about my own life. But with that call, a lot of anger was released, especially in the first couple of chapters of the book. What was interesting to me about it was that there was genuine emotion in it. And I think when the emotion is genuine, it's fluid. It, it changes. It metamorphoses. And on the heels of the anger, there was sort of sympathy and insight into the fact that this was a man who was uh, orphaned at the, before he was three years old. He and his older siblings went into uh, the Fred Finch Orphanage in Oakland because their father had died. And he lost essentially both mother and father because she took work as a domestic and visited when she could. Takui, his mother, his father's name was Armanach. Um, and uh, so then the book proceeds from there. And uh, uh, what was fascinating to me, because I was both monitoring his progress, uh, keeping my distance, because he had sent that warning to Lucy. Um, and at, at a certain point, it you know, first of all, there were a lot of memories that kept coming up, and that I would write down as they occurred to me. And then at a certain point, I was having a memory about being eight years old, after my father's and mother's second divorce. They married and divorced twice by the time I was eight, and I was living with my mother and younger sister in a one-bedroom apartment at the corner of Olympic Boulevard and McCarty Drive in, in Beverly Hills. And my mother was just zonked. She was like a 28-year-old. Uh, woman who had obviously made a serious mis life mistake, was now a single mom with two kids, and so on. And I was, I, I had a two-wheeler, and I was in front of the apartment building, and I picked up the bike and spun the wheel uh, just to look at the spokes disappeared as I spun the wheel. And Suddenly, all the noises of the neighborhood went kind of wacko. Uh, it was like uh, some kind of wrinkle, um, sonic wrinkle just infected the whole noise. And I was remembering this moment. This kind of thing happened maybe three or four times during that period. And I realized, why am I remembering this? And the reason I was remembering it was because having to keep my distance from him the way he had asked or commanded or mandated or whatever you'd say, I was going a little nuts again. And I realized I don't care what he says. First of all, he's dying. So whether I hurry the death along it really is irrelevant at this point, and I have to see him. 
And at that point, I decided to go down and, and see him with our younger daughter, who had always charmed him. And I figure I, I'll get into the room with her along. Her name is Cream. And uh, what happened then was a kind of resolution that I could never have anticipated. And uh, it turned into uh, a, a healing uh, a deathbed healing for, for me and and then uh, Lucy was able to come down a second time and, and things went better and uh, w- what was really interesting about that to me was that the writing itself reached a point where the only way I could continue was through an action, it it kind of mandated that I do something rather than simply continue to write, and so uh, that that was the trajectory of that began with the anger and ended uh, with the healing. And I was I was very worried about the reception of the book. I'd written a book about the B generation that came out a couple of years earlier, and. Uh, gotten a couple of big bad reviews and i thought jesus i'm going to get crucified for this book you know because i'm taking on a kind of a literary santa claus here and uh nobody's going to like this well in fact it the book got wonderful reviews all over the place and what was even more wonderful is that people wrote to me, and they didn't write to me about uh, a famous father. They wrote to me about their own families and how, you know, there's this, uh, you know, double bind sometimes when a when a person, a parent, is perceived in a certain way that it really doesn't uh, sync with uh, who that who that person is if you know them in in your family you know so it was a very healing experience on on many levels and i and i also had put down this baggage that i've been carrying for 37 years of uh being the son of this uh, famous guy um and he still you know he's he was famous for year for decades and and is still famous wasn't the kind of you know movie star fame of the 30s and 40s but uh like i say i think he was uh, an enduring writer and i i feel very differently about him now i mean you know he's uh, first of all i'm older than he was when he died maybe 71 72 72 yeah 72 well, and he had prostate cancer, and he could have done a routine operation to prolong his life. Uh, he didn't do that. He decided not to do it. But I must say, the way he died, he was he was alert, awake, and very, you know, in full possession of all his faculties, and and did some wonderful stuff. Uh, he kind of gave me the last scene of the book. You know, he, uh, I went over to him 
at the end of a hospital visit that might have lasted an hour or so. And he seemed to be asleep. And my daughter kissed him and he looked up kind of startled. And then I came forward and I said, said to him, uh, I, w- I was going to kiss him before I left as well. And I said, goodbye, pop. And I just put, you know, I, I bent down to, uh, kiss him on the forehead and I felt, uh, his arm around my uh, shoulder. And suddenly I was holding him in, in my arms. He was very light. The cancer had just ravaged his body. And I, it was like, you know, the strong neck and everything was, was soft. It was like holding a baby. And I, 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 I said, goodbye, pop. And he said, goodbye, arm. He says, the most beautiful time of my life and death. <laughs> A classic um, Saroyan line. Um, anyway, so that, that was that's a story in that book. When I think back of my brief time with him, four months, uh, and I was a student, and this was a requirement uh-huh. in a drama class that you either acted in the play or you built the sets or in this case acted as a rehearsal assistant uh, what i most remember about him first of all he was not the slightest bit controversial during the time he was on campus but he dressed uh-huh. he dressed in a black suit every day a black shirt a black tie uh black shoes uh-huh. black socks and drove a black car that the university provided to him and was personable to everybody um when I think about that, I want you to kind of fill in the blanks about him because one of the things that is you write about it, he and there's a lot of copy about it is the mustache and the role that that played in in the image of William Saroyan. Yeah, it's interesting because that mustache, you know, up to that time, uh, the, the he began wearing a mustache and it was a much more modest one in those, in those early days. But, um, he had been a very handsome man about town, um, who was, you know, just a, an American guy. Um, my mother said to me, you know, years later, she said, when I met your father, he was ex- he looked exactly, I mean exactly, like Al Pacino in The Godfather. And uh, so then suddenly around the age of 40, when when he had, when his reputation had gone into eclipse, he, he returned to an older image that would have been identifiable in his father who had a big handlebar mustache who had died young. Um, He became more of an Armenian than he had been. Uh, And partly because of the adulation of the Armenians uh, who, who loved him, you know, this was a horrible period for the Armenians, um, the genocide, which is still unrecognized by the official Turkish government, although I think many Turkish citizens are shamed by that position. Um, 
that official uh, line. But uh, Saroyan was, at that time, perhaps the most famous Armenian. Uh, and because of the media and all the changes that had occurred, at that time, perhaps the most famous Armenian of all time. I mean, that would now be, you know, Kim Kardashian and Cher. Uh, but, uh, you know, and he's, he's a beloved figure, um, especially to the Armenians, although I will meet Armenians who, who love him, and, and there are certain statements that he's made that are, that are in pl- on placards and framed in, in ho- homes in Armenia and the diaspora. But um, a, a lot of times, you know, they'll say, w- William Saroyan, you know, and is a semi-deity. But uh, the interesting thing is, if you ask them, well, what is, do you have a favorite uh, book? Or is, it, is there something you particularly like by him? And a lot of times they haven't read uh, read him, uh, which isn't to say that you know he he's been on media. He he's you know he's been a, very available, and so there's a wonderful clip of him actually uh, going the rounds on the internet uh, of an interview with Dick Cavett late in his life where you see an enormous mustache and uh he's absolutely charming you know he's a terrific uh he kind of ended up uh just going back to the artist that he he had been originally after surviving you know the sort of huge success that was then uh diminished because of a zeitgeist shift and then just doing some of his very best work at the end of his life so he he did well i think you know he's an exemplary couple things that uh, uh, i want to have you expand on one is that when he died the ashes were eventually split between Fresno, California, and Armenia, Armenia, a country yeah. that used to be a part of the Soviet Union, has a population of about 3 million. Do you happen to know, by the way, how large the diaspora is of, of the Armenians? I don't, but I imagine it's much larger in number than than the 3 million. Uh, the Glendale uh, and Burbank in Los Angeles are, are really the best, uh, the most heavily populated uh, places in the in the diaspora. If um, you if you get online, uh, there's a lot. It takes a while, but you can find a lot documentaries, uh, his artwork, uh, <clears throat> a lot of things that he's written. Um, but why why Fresno? What, what and how many? Armenians, or what's the? Uh, why did Armenia Armenians pick Fresno in this? And what kind of a town is it? And his name's on everything there. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, my understanding is that uh, while they were uh, uh, Armenak managed to get to America 
around 1905. His father. Uh, yes, his father. And after he was uh, there for a year or two, and he was an ordained minister, and apparently his command of English was good enough that he had his own uh, parish on the East Coast. I don't, I don't know whether... It may have been in Patterson, New Jersey, um, under uh, or one of his sponsors was a minister named William Stonehill, and eventually was able to get Takui and their three children, Cosette, Zabel, and Henry, to the East Coast, but uh, Takui didn't really like being on the East Coast, and they got a letter from someone in Fresno who said, you know, come out here. The climate apparently was similar to what they had known in Armenia. They came originally from Bitlis, Armenia, which I believe is part of Turkey today. Um, And my father was the only one of his siblings to be born in America. And I believe they must have, it must have been a happy time for that family because it was a reunion. Um, he was born in 1908 in Fresno. And um, Armanach died, I believe, in 1911 of an appendicitis. He, he wasn't able to get his footing in Fresno. Um, the parish that had been promised or had just been a, a ruse or a liar uh, never happened. And uh, he became a chicken farmer. And I think had pretty much lost, lost his uh, feeling for for what had happened, you know, for, for his own life. And, uh, essentially the story goes, I don't know whether it's a myth or not, but the story goes that, uh, he was brought into the house by a couple of farmhands and laid on a sofa. And it was obvious that he was very ill. And I, I think maybe appendicitis was suspected, but he begged Takui for a glass of water, which, was not the proper medicine for the, for his situation, and she brought it to him. He he, uh, he drank it and died. Well, whether that's true or not, uh, it may just be mythology. It was a story that he knew, and it must have been confusing to him as he was growing up because it was you know kind of implicated his mother and in his father's death on him but um on your father personally how much education did he have well he only went to uh i i think through the eighth grade but then he went to technical school to learn typing and of course he was reading constantly he the thing is when he emerged at 26 he was able to produce stories that were like 
um, a, a kind of uh, fluent and very readable adaptation of all the modernist writers of that period. I mean, he was one of the last modernists. And uh, he made it palatable for a large audience. And, uh, you know, it was just a terrific uh, presence in, in literature in, in a very dark time. Uh, and because he had endured the orphanage, he had somehow managed to steel himself to the to the calamities that life could could uh, turn uh, that 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 could come through in a person's life, and he was able to handle the emotional uh, cataclysm of the depression in a way that no other writer could. Um, you know, Steinbeck wrote The Great Grapes of Wrath. Uh, and he wrote My Name is Aram, uh, which is just lyrical, and you would never guess uh, that this is written b- by an orphan. It's funny, there's a wonderful letter that Steinbeck, who was his closest contemporary, wrote to uh, Pop... Uh, just when those first stories in My Name is Arm were appearing in the Atlantic Monthly. And, you know, uh, there's, with his first few books after The Daring Young Man, you can feel him reaching into his second drawer and saying, I can get some money for this, and sending out stuff that was really second tier. Uh, And, uh, Steinbeck wrote to him and just said, you know, Bill, in these new stories, you're telling stuff that only you know. And I thought, geez, what a wonderful, generous gift it was for for John Steinbeck to write that. There is even a rumor that at a certain point, the two, both of them were considered for the Nobel and they gave it to Steinbeck because they figured... Soroyan might turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, he yeah. he had a 29-cent stamp that was issued by the United States in 1991. He also was on a banknote in Armenia, may still be. Um, yeah. yeah. But I want to ask you about the reaction for him, and for you for that matter, that your mother, Carol, married Walter Matthau and was married to him for years and years and years. Yes. Well, he, uh, I mean, as far as Walter goes, uh, I remember him saying, uh, you know, I like Walter. He's, he's a lucky guy. He's a, he, he thought he was terrific. Um, and Walter was in a couple of uh, Pops plays that are on, they're in a, uh, on a DVD that we have, Um one is a short play called Once Around the Block that's quite, it's a, it's a terrific piece. 
and the other is his first Broadway play, My Hearts in the Highlands, um, both of which uh, was uh, a young Walter Matthau as a star um, of both. And, you know, Walter respected Pop, and uh, they didn't know each other. They didn't socialize. But um, And Carol, you know, was my mother was... Uh, she was a an eighteen year old actually like him in her earliest years a foster child, none of which he knew about when when they married but um he once said to me uh, in in a sober mood he said uh, I fell in love with your mother's past." And I think what he meant by that was that the two of them were orphans. And I think there was, you know, it was her first love, and it was a rocky ride for her because she was not equipped to be married to this guy who was about in his mid-30s when she was barely out of her teens. I mean, she wasn't. She was 19 when I was born. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was tough on her. She never forgot that how hurt she had been by what happened between them. Whereas pop gradually over the years, and he was very embittered, you know, at, at certain times he forgave her. Uh, and he, at at the end of his life, with all the problems, I mean, he, you know, basically disinherited his two children and his grandchildren, and so on. Um, so you got you got that, nothing from your father when he died. We got something, but it was uh, a little bit complicated. It was, uh, it was ownership of a property that we had lived on in Bolinas that he had bought. And the idea was that he would pass it on to us. And in fact, he didn't. And we eventually were able to get it through legal. Where, where, are, where are you today physically? Physically, I live in Newport Beach right now. And your life as a writer, uh, is it continuing? Are you still writing? And what are you writing? Um, actually, in the last, I would say about the last five years, uh, I've primarily been, uh, I've been, been doing art. Um, and I'm, you can see some of that in, on a, Instagram, I'm at Soroyanesque, which is a word that people coined back in the day for the quality of my dad's writing, but I just borrowed it. How much... Go ahead. How much are you like your father? Um, Well, these days... I'll tell you, I feel very lucky to have known 
him. It was a, it was a great gift. And one of the things I recognized over the years is because I had, you know, friends with fathers who lived at home and so on. And I realized I really knew the guy because even though I saw him mostly on summer vacations after they um, divorced, uh, he, he was there 100% when when you were with him. And uh, he was a wonderful uh, teacher, not not in an explicit way, but just in ways that he demonstrated. Um, I remember when I was writing minimal poems back in, in the 60s, Lucy and I shared a one-bedroom apartment with him in Chelsea, uh, just off the King's Road, um, for about two months. We were in our early 20s. He was in his 50s and sort of in the lion winter phase of his life. But he was doing sort of late-ending parenting with his two 60s kids and was really almost maternal. I mean, he would make Armenian recipes and we'd talk together. I remember one night, Lucy and I were both camped out on sofas in the living room and he was, he got the bedroom, but, um, we were chatting about something. I think I, you know, we may have, one of us was maybe stretched out on the sofa or whatever. And, uh, he was standing at the door and he said, at, at, you know, at the end of some exchange, he said, well, good night, kids. And he switched off light. We were all in complete darkness. <laughs> and he switched it back on, doubled over in laughter, you know. It was funny. He was fun and uh, as sort of my favorite memories of him. You, you write in, in your book, it it has made it possible for him to remain unknown, not only to his public, that is, but also by giving him the ease, easy out of the adulation, and in the case of Armenians, the outright coddling of their unquestioning and, in fact, blind acceptance to remain, in essence, unknown to himself as well. You were talking about his fame. Um, yeah. how, how did he— Well, I mean, I think—go ahead. No, go ahead. No, uh, what were you going to say? How did he what? I, I was just going to ask you, how did he deal with the fact that he wasn't as well-known as he was, say, during World War II later on in his life? Um, well, I think he returned to his roots as just as a modernist artist. He was engaged by writing and by art because he, he did a lot of uh, drawings and watercolors and, and so on, which he didn't do much about publicizing. Uh, but um, he, uh, he was an artist. That, that's what he was. And it, it, it wasn't, it's not an easy uh, journey in, in America. Uh, it's uh, you've got. Uh, it's not a culture that that really appreciates uh, the independent 
non-academic uh, affiliate, unaffiliated artist, uh, that that voice is an exception. Uh, how many how many actual writers that we would consider artists are uh, are there in America today? Are there a hundred of them? You know, uh, other than you know people who have essentially made their living through the media or through. Uh, academia or through time life newsweek whatever um or tv uh, or the movies uh, and that's not to uh denigrate any of them uh h- however they find whatever path they find i think the contributors but um, he was one of the exceptions who was able to live his life and, and find things that he wanted to do that came specifically out of his, his reality. And that's, that's an exceptional uh, situation for a writer in America. Uh, not many of them survived. The people who survived who were closest to him as figures over the years, I think are for the twenties. I think Fitzgerald was comparable to what Soroyan was in the thirties. And after Soroyan, because he acknowledges him as a, as a big influence, the next figure would have been Kerouac. Uh, And both Fitzgerald and Hemingway uh, and um, Kerouac died in their 40s, whereas Soroyan, in spite of what happened, you know, with his reputation and both, and that happened with both Kerouac and Fitzgerald as well, lived 72 years, you know. So he was a survivor as well. How much did gambling and the loss in gambling play in his life and, for that matter, yours? Well, I, I was never a gambler, but uh, he, uh, he uh, I think he equated having a financial handicap because he was, you know, dirt poor as, as a young writer. Um, with the alchemy of of what he was able to create. So at, at a certain point, uh, when things were down, uh, he, he was compulsive. But he he survived. He survived all that. He, he died with a, you know, it was 81. Uh, he had a million and a half a state, if not more, you know, he was okay. He, he took care of himself. He was, he was eccentric. He was a hoarder. He, uh, had all kinds of, you know, issues, but, uh, he kept on. What happened you know, to the Fresno in, house? 
well, the Fresno, <clears throat> what, the original house? Well, I know that there's been a lot of attention given to the foundation and <clears throat> also a museum. And uh, where is the museum? And why has Fresno held on to this Saroyan name all these years? Well, he put Fresno on the map. There's a there's a passage in uh, Kerouac's On the Road where Kerouac is in, in Fresno, and he just muses, so this is Saroyan's town. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's a, the beloved son of, of, that, of that place. Have you participated um, in keeping all this alive yourself? I, I haven't been uh, in, in contact. I, I mean, I was persona non grata after last rites. But the Armenians and I have got are, are getting along. We're doing okay. Um, you know, they've forgiven me, and I've forgiven them. I mean, you know, they're a wonderful people. They really are, and they've had a, you know, they've had a tough run. Uh, but. Uh, you know that they're, they're basically, I think, a wonderful people. Let me and uh, let me ask you about one because I've watched a bunch of the documentaries that are around, and I want to run a clip from a man, and you can pronounce it for me. When I'll, I'll give it a try, Charles Butch Yagian. I'm sure that's not right. Do you know that name? Uh, Janigian, I think. Uh, is that who you're talking about? I am, Janigian? yes. Here, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he was sitting on a couch around with some of the family members because family seemed to be important. Let me run this and get your reaction to what he said about uh, your father. Okay. I remember towards the end when um, Willie was in the hospital in Fresno and he was on his deathbed. Uh, it was Uncle Archie who actually tried to get uh, Willie's children, both Lucy and uh, little Aram, into uh, the hospital to see Bill, yeah. to make peace. Um, there had never really been any animosity from Bill to the children, but Bill felt that the children basically had let him down and had sided with the mother uh, through the divorces and had uh, taken the mother's side on the family history rather than his and they didn't understand him and it was Archie who brought Lucy to the hospital who did ultimately uh, tell her tell her father who she called Pop Pop I love you and uh, I don't know exactly what happened with little Aram but uh, I know they tried to make up at the end as well. By the way, uh, ran a clip for two reasons. One, the music in the background, Come On to My House. I want you to talk about that in a minute. That's from a documentary called uh, Saroyan's Will in 2008. What did you think of that uh, comment? Oh, well, he got, he got everything wrong, but uh, that's okay. I mean, Charles is really, first of all, Archie is a beloved in figure for me. He was uh, Pop's uh, cohort as an artist. He's uh, a wonderful poet and uh, his, uh, you know, first cousin. Their their mothers were sisters and also lost his uh, father early. 
Um, he had nothing to do with Lucy getting there. And Little Arm is a re- relation is, you know, I was 37 at the time. He's talking because Big Arm was Uncle Arm, who was fa- uh, uh, Pop's father, surrogate, when he was growing up, and a difficult figure, and also an inspiring figure for, for Pop. But uh, he, he, he's, he, he means well, and he's, he's trying to uh, sort things out, but he doesn't really know the history and he hasn't availed himself of the books about it that have been have been written by me and others um so that's all i can say about that someone my age and you're not too far behind me uh will remember come on to my house sung by rosemary clooney what did your father have to do with that song well, Ross was another cousin, and they were very close. And Ross uh, Bagdasarian. Yes, Ross Bagdasarian, and uh, that uh, song came out of, I believe, a cross-country drive. You know, Ross played the pinball addict in in the original uh, Broadway production of The Time of Your Life, and I believe they. Uh, maybe after the play closed, the two of them drove across the country, and and uh, during that time, they they kind of resurrected an Armenian folk song uh, that became "Come On to My House." Ross was a real musician, and later did um, the the singing Chipmunks and uh, a whole. Uh, a lot, a lot of uh, terrific music, but uh, and he was, uh, you know, very, very important in, in launching the uh, the piece. But uh, gave half credit to Pop, and I'm sure Pop contributed to it. Um, and it's a wonderful, uh, you know, it's a great American songbook. In your life, you've been celebrated for a number of things, including the world's shortest poem, which is in the Guinness Book of Records. Tell us about that. Well, the, you know, this was uh, during the 60s, uh, and uh, it was a period of, you know, modernist uh, experiments. And I uh, was a young poet and uh, found myself intrigued by uh, what was then called concrete or minimalist poetry and wrote a lot of uh, poems in about a two or three year period that uh, a couple of books were published in 68 and 69 by Random House, Arms, Royan and Pages. And then recently, more recently, in the new millennium, were reprinted all of the books of that period. And that was a wonderful time. Um, and those those poems, uh, I think, were part the, the uh, notoriety or the fame of many of those pieces are have to do with the internet. When I first got on the internet, I was surprised to find that the books 
were already there. You know, and they were getting as much or more attention digitally than they had uh, in print. What was the world's shortest poem? M. I was uh, working as a uh, paste-up person. This is before computers and where you could, you know, get clean copy. And uh, there was a a big M. And I thought, what would happen if I added another hump to this letter? So I just pasted that up. And that was... uh, that was the word shortest poem. <laughs> what, what did it? What was it supposed to mean? I don't know. You need to look at it and figure it out. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> well, what about the other poem, "Light"? "Light" is interesting because um, that's a poem where really, okay, I was you know twenty-one or twenty-two and. I was playing with with the language, and really the the whole issue in the, in that poem is, well, do you add one gh or do you add two ghs or what? And so it was like an aesthetic decision to add to to do l i g h g h t. If you added l i g h T-G-H-T, which some people had misprinted it as, that doesn't work. Nor does L-I-G-H-G-T or whatever. So, okay, it was pretty much a done deal when you did it, but it involved a lot of, it involved an aesthetic decision. And uh, then it involved, like, would somebody publish it? And, in fact, because of Concrete Poetry, the Chicago Review published it. And um, it won an NEA award that was given by a distinguished American poet. Um, And when I say an award, it was $500 to me and $250 to the Chicago Review for printing it. And uh, Robert Duncan chose the poem, and he's he, he is, I I believe, one of the one of the major American poets of the 20th century. But um, a congressman got a hold of this and took it onto the floor of Congress. Said this is a misuse of public money at the rate of. Uh, you know, $87.36 per letter. <laughs> At that point, they went nuts and uh, cut the NEA budget of several million dollars, and they would use that poem periodically as a sort of uh, laser uh tool to uh, cut the budget um, whenever they wanted to get rid of the NEA. When uh, when you look back at that, Nat, <clears throat> what year would that have been? 65? 
The poem was written in 65, I believe, fall of 65, yeah. What What are your thoughts when you realize that a poem with one word, L-I-G-H-G-H-T, uh, won a national um, endowment for the arts $750 award? What, what, do you, what does it look like to you at, uh, at your age now? Well, it was it was an honor. Well, I'm not I'm not I'm not really getting oh, at it. From... There's a very funny funny story. I met I I ran into Robert Duncan that year. We were both in Berkeley, and we were waiting for a bus to go back into San Francisco. And we got on the bus, and Duncan was an extraordinary talker, and I was basically just listening. And but at a certain point, he said, "You know, there were poems by you that year." that were more traditional and I could have I could have chosen one of those said but an angel told me to choose that poem and I thought god I wish he'd given a press conference back then and alerted people you know because uh government has no business making judgments about it about what this is it's a For whatever reason, it's one of the poems that people know today. That's all. And and this is not even my business. It just happens to have happened. What do you you think it means? Well, I think during the, the 60s, one of the things that happened for my generation was that Space itself got more vivid, maybe through psychedelics, maybe through just what was going on. It was a melting kind of clock situation for for a generation, and uh, that poem is about that on some level. Uh, and it also was an intriguing object to me because the GHs are silent. And so you can add them in. And if it's in lower case, which it should be, it's a, it's a wonderful shape. Um, and so I just, I just liked it. It was a combination of, I guess, visual and, uh, lit literary, um, and it just uh, struck a nerve. Um, what what in, on a personal basis? What impact did it have on you? You lost your sister Lucy. What was it? Two, was it two thousand and eight? It was two thousand three, actually. Yeah. And you lost yeah, your I wife was, uh, two years ago. Yes. So I mean, it's I suppose an obvious question, but what impact did both of those have on you personally? Well, with Galen, the loss was, uh, you know, uh, very, very hard. Uh, you know, she was my wife of over half a century, and she was a, a terrific uh, person. And, uh, you know, my love for her is indelible. And with Lucy, the same thing. And uh, Lucy was was troubled she had she had problems like we all do and uh 
uh, she was a wonderful person. So I, I miss her. I miss, of course, Galen. Here's a quote from, I've got a number of quotes from your father, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, he said, I have managed to conceal my madness fairly effectively. And as far as I know, it hasn't hurt anybody badly, for which I am grateful. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you needed to check with a couple of other people <laughs> on that one. All right, here's another. Here's, no, I, go ahead. Well, that's all. That's all I've got on that one. Here's another one. I'm enormously wise and abysmally ignorant. Well, he, you know, if you get to reading a book like Obituaries, which was his last, the last book he published during his own lifetime, it's the longest prose work of his career. And in spite of having some cheap shots at Lucy and me, and of course, Carol, uh, it's a terrific piece of work. And he is a combination of uh, storyteller and philosopher at his best. And Obituaries is an extraordinary book. It's, it's not an easy book, but it's, it's, it's a terrific book, and it got some good reviews. All right, here's another one. The only person I have ever really loved is Soroyan. And all that I really love now is the little of Soroyan still left in me. Yeah, and that, that's one that I discovered in, as a note to himself when we were spending a summer in Paris with him when I was 15. And I thought that, you know, I just took note of that. And that's a sad commentary, you know, on... I think his fame was in eclipse at that point, and it was a tough time for him. That was a, that was the summer that uh, my mother remarried in New York while Lucy and I lived with uh, Pop in, in Paris. Um, you know, this is a kind of a sad note. doesn't really need to endure because I think he went way beyond that, but for that time. It was 1959. He was 50. One last quote. In obituaries, which you mentioned earlier. By the way, is there, are any of his books still in print? Oh, absolutely. Um, My Name is R, The Human Comedy. Obit well, I don't know about obituaries. There are many anthologies of, of his work, and uh, uh, you know, like I say, the theater classics are done all the time, uh, the time of your life. And uh, so he's he's in currency. But the, the quote out of the book is from uh, your father, William Sorrent, an idiot father. This is his quote. I'm an idiot father of a young and stupid son and a younger <laughs> and more stupid daughter. Okay, Pop. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I don't know. You, you know, 
like this is family dirty laundry. I mean, you know, there's nothing to say about something like that. He was in a bad mood. <laughs> but you're able to laugh at it many, many years later. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't exactly something that was going to force me to commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was he was a great guy who also had some bad stuff happen and uh, did the best he could. And he did great, so. Let me remind the, the audience of the book. Hey, by the way, is, the, is Last Rite still available? The book Last Rites is on Kindle. Yeah, it's it's available on Kindle. Our, our guest has been Aram Saroyan, talking to us today from Newport Beach, California. Author of Last Rites: The Death of William Saroyan, as chronicled by his son, and lots of other works that you can easily find on the internet. And I want to thank you so much for uh, filling in the blanks for me after these last sixty-one years. Okay, Brian, thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.